You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. But let me first introduce President Hennessy. All of you, of course, he is our fabulous leader here. In fact, the reason we asked uh, President Hennessy to kick this off is because he is a remarkable entrepreneurial leader of this amazing university. But he isn't just an academic. As many of you know, he also is a very successful entrepreneur. He has been involved with founding many startup high-tech companies and, in fact, took time off to launch his own venture uh, before then coming back to Stanford. And uh, that certainly didn't stop his career as he ended up propelling himself up to the president of the university. And he's going to tell us about his insights, about being a leader in a fast-growing, dynamic environment where you really need to be very entrepreneurial. So, President Hennessy. Thank you, Tina. Um, Well, Tina asked me to talk about the whole issue of entrepreneurial leadership and how I think about it. So let me start by telling you what I think the biggest challenge is for a startup company in Silicon Valley, for the Intels and the Cisco's and the Microsoft's of the world, and for the universities of the world. And the biggest challenge is how do you nurture and grow innovation? Innovation is the challenge that all Small young companies face. It's the challenge that all universities face. It's the challenge that big companies face. And you only have to look out there and see how important that challenge is. How many big information technology companies, for example, continue to grow from one generation of technology into the next where something else dominates? You've got IBM up there, which grew very quickly when the mainframe was the computer but didn't grow nearly so quickly in the next generation where the personal computer became the driving force for the industry. Now, as the internet becomes the driving force, companies which centered their growth around the personal computer don't grow as fast as the internet companies. That challenge of innovation is the key one. And I believe that the kind of entrepreneurial thinking that comes from understanding how to create innovation, how to nurture it, how to move it out and grow it, is the key to building that kind of innovative spirit. So that's the kind of thing that I want to, that's the kind of focus that I want to do. Thank you. Now, what is, hello? (laughs) What is innovation, what is innovation really all about in the end? Well, I want to talk about some components of it in the context of new technologies, but let me just say that in the context of a university, Think how critical innovation is. No innovation? What's your research agenda for a research university if you don't have innovation? There is no research agenda because the research agenda is fundamentally about discovery and innovation. Even on the education side, though, what really matters? It's preparing that next generation. And if that next generation is going to be successful, they have to think entrepreneurially, they have to think innovatively. So as as we think about how we educate people, that kind of entrepreneurial thinking, that kind of innovative thinking, that's the skill set. That's the understanding we want to begin to nourish in young people. Now, universities can do that, and they can go pretty far down that road. It's not the same as being in a startup, but you can get pretty far down that road. And I want to talk some about how to make that happen in the context of a university. But let's start by talking about what makes an innovative entrepreneurial environment. If you think about Stanford and you think, what's the characteristic that people would say makes Stanford most unique? Forget the weather, not the weather, of course. That helps, that helps, beautiful views, nice campus, all that. But the heart and soul of this institution is its entrepreneurial way of thinking. It's that we're pioneers. And this, it's historically, of course, this goes back to the very beginning. Leland Stanford packed up his things. He had a law practice that wasn't doing well, packed up his things, moved across the country, said, well, I could go dig gold out of a mine, or I could start a store to sell things to the gold miners. 
And of course, starting the store was a much better idea. And then building the transcontinental railroad. And then, of course, starting a university. A university which, from the beginning, was quite different in how it thought about things. At a time when most universities in the US only had men in, it had women from the very beginning. At a time when universities said, well, we don't want to be too close to the practical aspects of preparing young people. Stanford was a university that from the beginning said, well, we want to train people to think in a liberal arts mindset, but we also want to teach them to do things hands-on. So that kind of entrepreneurial thinking, I think, goes back to the very beginning and, of course, really blossomed in the, in the time beginning with Hewlett and Packard and Fred Terman's leadership uh, at the engineering school at Stanford, and then went on for many years after that. And I'll talk about some of those things as we get a chance to talk. I'm going to leave lots of time for questions, too, so um, be prepared. So what makes that great innovative environment? What makes the place where things get created? Well, it begins with people. It begins with people, it ends with people. It is about people. It's about people who like to think differently. It's about people who are willing to take risks and to think outside the domain. And those come in all different kinds of ways. Traditionally, universities begin with domain experts. They begin with people who have very deep knowledge in a particular field. But if that's all we had, it wouldn't be enough. You need more than that. You need people who are willing to have a vision that things could be done differently. I still remember vividly when Jim Clark came here as an assistant professor. I was an assistant professor. It was the early 1980s, uh, the VLSI movement, the movement towards allowing, opening up access to integrated circuits so that people could design using their knowledge, using system knowledge, could begin to design and take advantage of that technology in a new way. And Jim Clark had a vision from the very beginning. He said, very high-end, three-dimensional computer graphics cost too much money. It costs $250,000 per seat for a system like that. And why? Well, it's built out of this old style electronics. But if we reconceived how to do this in VLSI, we could drive down the cost by a factor of five or more. And of course, that was the right vision. And he drove for that vision, finding new ways to use this new technology to do things that was really effective. That kind of, that kind of person who's willing to form that vision which, at the beginning, people often say, oh, he's reaching too far, he's trying something too hard, he won't succeed. Of course, in research, if we don't take some chances, we never succeed. So it, it is that visionary that's really important then. But that's only one example of a, of a key kind of way of doing it. When we started the MIPS project at Stanford, um, we started with a very simple question that led to the, one of the projects that discovered what's now called risk computing and discovered some of the underlying principles. But we started with a simple question. Computers have been designed like this way for many years. They've been designed assuming they would be built out of this sort of technology. In the new world, remember this is still the 1980s, they'll be designed as microprocessors. Shouldn't we rethink how computers are designed given that they're going to be on one chip and not on many chips at that time. And that was all we started with, just that simple question. But that question led us to realize that the switch from big mainframes and mini computers to microprocessors would represent a change. It was a discontinuous point in technology, and that technology drove and, of course, eventually changed the entire computer industry. Had we all known then that microprocessors were going to wipe out the entire computer industry and take over, we all would have been much better off. We would have started a lot more successful companies. Um, but it was the beginning of a quantum change. And we thought of ourselves really almost as explorers. We didn't know how this technology was going to change the way computers would be designed. But we just had this gut instinct that why not come back and rethink the problem? And that willingness to rethink the problem, it's almost, you're almost a bit naive. I mean, you can think of the old explorers coming across the Atlantic looking for the shortcut to China. They didn't know they were going to find an entire new continent out there. 
It's a very similar kind of thing. You don't know what you'll discover, but you have a gut instinct that there's an opportunity there. And that's how we began our project. Lots of projects, I think, in the university begin with that insight, that there's a discontinuity here, and we should go try to figure out what it means. The other thing that I think universities are good at, research laboratories often try to do, is to get people to live on the edge of technology. When you push yourself to use the newest technology, to try the new thing, to use it and explore what its potential might be, you often discover things that are not obvious at the beginning. I still remember going over to see what was the first prototype of Yahoo running in Jerry Yang and David Philo's office, which at that time, they lived in a set of, their office was in a set of trailers, because we'd run out of office space in the building they were in, and they were in a set of trailers, which just always reminds me that innovation can happen anywhere, that that entrepreneurial drive can begin in a set of, in a, in a trailer office that was piled with Coke cans and pizza boxes. That was perhaps the most important, one of the most important ingredients. But there was the prototype of Yahoo, and what had, what had happened? Very simple. The net was growing, Dave and Jerry were surfing it because they thought this was an interesting new phenomena, and said, we need to begin to organize the sites on the net so that we can share them with other people, with our friends, and so that we can come back to the sites that we found interesting. Whether it was to order pizza over the internet, find a movie directory, look up something, whatever it was. The key thing was, they had access to the internet, they had access to the World Wide Web, before that access was broadly available, they were living at the edge, trying out this technology before there was a giant user community, and of course, discovered that certain things were necessary, ways of navigating were necessary in order to make it successful. So th this kind of innovation where people, young people come in and try something different. Now when L Larry Page and Sergey Brin started working on Google, they didn't start with the problem of doing web search. They weren't working on web search. They were working on the problem of searching digital libraries. And in fact, their work was funded by the National Science Foundation to do library search. Now, what did they observe about library search? Well, suppose you want to look up um, a book by John Hennessy, and you want to know which book is the most important. How would you figure that out? Well, often, in research papers and other work, the number of citations of a particular work is a good indicator of how important it is. Well, that concept transports to the web. The number of people that point to a given website are an indication of that importance of that website. And then you can take that, think of the web as a giant graph and do a transitive closure on it. And that's basically the core algorithm that started Google. What they were willing to do, though, was to say, well, there are lots of web search engines out there, but we think we can do something better. Because those other web search engines produce tens of thousands, or in some cases, hundreds of thousands of hits. But not the one I want may not be anywhere near the top of that list. What they observed is that they could do a much better job of web search, despite the fact that there were already companies out there selling search engines. So that willingness to try to do better, even though somebody's already been there, is important. And I have seen time and time again that characteristic comes from young people who are willing to go down the path, unaware of the fact that other people have been down those paths, and maybe find new opportunities along the way. One of the things I've observed over time is people who are involved in the creation of new technology not only become the best advocates for that technology and the best, um, but also become the best people for transporting the technology from the walls of the academy to the outside environment. And I've tried to think hard about why are companies which take the entrepreneurs from a research environment and move them out so much more successful than those that start by reading a research paper, for example, and begin to build the technology on the basis of that research paper. Well, it's clear that the people who worked on the technology have a lot of insights into what did work and what didn't work. 
But I think the most important characteristic they have in the end is that they're optimists about what they've worked on. They see the glass as half full rather than half empty. And all you have to do is go pitch something to the venture capitalist one time to see how critical this issue is. When you go and pitch a new technology, what you get back are all the criticisms, all the reasons why that new technology, while it worked great in the lab, will never scale up to solve real commercial problems and people will never pay real money for it. I, I still remember um, one time when uh, we had just started MIPS and a colleague of mine uh, at Berkeley, by the name of Dave Patterson, who I've co-authored several textbooks with, um, we were on a panel. And at that time, the risk ideas, which had been done at Stanford, Berkeley, and IBM Yorktown Heights, their research laboratory, were still extremely controversial. So there was a guy on the panel who was um, our opposition saying, well, this stuff is for the baloney and it doesn't really work and it'll never be commercial. And, and so the panel's going along. Finally, we have Q&A with the audience. And the audience says to this person who's um, poo-pooing our ideas, said, well, you know, I understand Hennessy has just gotten some money from the venture capitalists to start a company based on this technology. What would you advise him to do, given your view of the technology? And he said, take the money and go to Brazil. <laughs> so uh, we didn't go to Brazil. Uh, it turned out we were right and he was wrong about uh, the importance of these various uh, technologies. Uh, and so, but I think that partly that came from our having been involved in the technology and having a commitment to it and an insight to it that was absolutely, um, absolutely crucial. So certainly everything begins with innovation, but innovation is in some sense um, like that little plant. You plant it in the ground, the seeds come up, and you remember how vulnerable it is at the very beginning. Those of you that live locally know that just as the plant comes out of the ground, that's the time that all the land snails come up and start to eat it. And in one night, they'll come down and they'll cut that plant down to nothing, strip every leaf off it, and that'll be the end of your plant. Well, that's the way it is with a new innovation. It starts in a very fragile way. It has to have a conducive environment. And if it's going to make the jump from a university setting to a commercial setting, then it's got to have the right kind of environment. Now, we're, we're blessed in this valley. We've got a great set of venture capital companies. We've got um, the kinds of lawyers that you actually like um, that help you uh, get these companies started. Um, we've got great management talent. We've got a great angel network. So we have lots of the uh, important pieces. And I think we've also had the uh, wonderful property that we've had leadership at the university that understands that faculty who become involved in startup companies can really learn a tremendous amount in that opportunity and can increase their impact on society. So that's enabled us to attract people who um, would like to see their impact go beyond a set of publications and like to help change the world and make it better through their contributions. But I think key, another key to making that um, all work is educating people appropriately. And I think um, the Stanford Technology Ventures Program is a big piece of that. When we started it many years ago, I think um, we started with the vision that Tom Byers um, had, and I think Tom and Tina have done a spectacular job. And I just wanted to mention, in case you didn't know it, that Tina just came back from a major award in Washington from the National Academy of Engineering, and they just won the Bernard Gordon Award for their contributions to the development of entrepreneurship education, which I think is just a wonderful accomplishment. Congratulations, Tina. But I think you can see the result of that. Over the last decade, this course has educated hundreds of students, some of whom will go out to start companies, some of whom will be entrepreneurial leaders, entrepreneurial thinkers, innovators in whatever walk of, walks of life they go into. And that's exactly the kind of activity we should have. We've expanded that recently with a new summer institute in entrepreneurship in the business school. Um, and I, I think as I look at all these things, what they try to do is teach students the lessons that I wish I had known before I started a company. Had I known even one set of lectures through this course, I could have saved 
six months or a year in the time that it took the company to be successful, and tens of millions of dollars in investor money. So there's a lot to be learned there. It's not, compared to creating the innovation and seeing it grow, it's not the hard part of the problem, but it is a key, a key ingredient. I think we also are thinking a lot about how do we apply entrepreneurial thinking to completely different contexts. Here we are in the middle of Silicon Valley. When people think about startups and entrepreneurship, they think of high tech, they think of biotech, they think of green tech. But I think that it's also the job of a great university to think globally. And one way we're trying to do that is through a course uh, called Entrepreneurial Design for Extreme Affordability that designs new novel projects for the developing world, not for the local high-tech environment, but in a completely different part of the world. And students go and tackle problems in that course that are problems for parts of sub-Saharan Africa, or rural India, or Tibet, uh, places in the world that have a very different set of problems. It's a completely different mindset, highly entrepreneurial, but you start with a price tag, $25, $10, $5 for a product as opposed to what we would normally think of in the valley. But I think you develop a set of skills there that are very similar. You need to think entrepreneurially. You need to think outside the box. You need to think about the entire process of not only innovation, but getting an innovation delivered in a very different environment than we're in now. Uh, and one of the magical things about this is to see the successes um, that this kind of process has which is very different from the Googles and the Yahoos and the Cisco's of the world. They are a small company called Ignite that's building a solar lantern for rural India. Or uh, companies that are building uh, new ultra-low-cost baby incubators, which Embrace is trying to do, um, which are, could, change, could change the lives of millions of people in a completely different segment of the world. But it's that same kind of entrepreneurial thinking that's driving it, and the same kind of key issue. Innovation is the key to solving the problem. So, when one thinks about all this and thinks about the university, the last thing I want to talk about before I open the floor for questions is how do you think about innovation and entrepreneurial behavior in a big university that wants to try to address some of the biggest problems in the world? If we want to help solve issues like environmental sustainability, uh, finding an environmentally appropriate way to generate energy for the future, if we want to try and solve the issues of stem cell and replacement biology so that we can begin to address not only childhood autoimmune diseases, but challenge the diseases which come with old age in our population. If we want to work on problems like that, those are large-scale problems. They require not just one innovation, but many innovations along the way. So how can a university use its entrepreneurial spirit and its ability to do that to work on problems of that scale? Well, in the end, innovation does come down to lots of small discoveries. What you have to do, though, is create discoveries that bring together collaborative teams, possibly from different disciplines, possibly from different parts of campus. You've also got to be prepared to realize that the final innovation will require a set of breakthroughs along the way. So you've got to be able to think differently. You've got to be able to have slightly bigger teams than you might normally have um, in many other innovative projects. And you've got to be able to couple people whose backgrounds and experiences are different. Now, of course, we do this in when we combine business and engineering, for example, in lots of uh, startups. But imagine trying to get a startup, which before you're ready to bring the business people in, you've got to bring together somebody from biochemistry, together with somebody from ophthalmology, together with somebody from chemical engineering, to think about a new way, for example, to design an artificial cornea. It requires a different level of setting. It requires people to cross disciplinary boundaries and it requires the university to encourage that kind of behavior. So as we think going forward and as the university increasingly tries to bring its capability to those kinds of problems, what we have to think about is creating a different kind of entrepreneurial thinking, a different kind of innovative environment.
And I think the future for great universities going forward is to bring that kind of talent and bring those kind of innovations to the world's biggest problems. Because in the end, if the universities can't work on the world's biggest problems, who will address those problems? We have to do it. It will be a challenge. It will be a different kind of challenge. But this is also a university that's learned a lot over many years and can bring itself to address new challenges. So let me stop there and open the floor up for questions on any topic you'd like to ask me about. If I know anything about it. If you ask me about elementary particle physics, I'm going to choose somebody else in the room to answer. So I think we have a microphone here and a microphone over here. A very simple question. What was instrumental in your life in making you an effective leader? Uh, what was instrumental? Uh, well, I'm probably a pretty competitive guy, and that probably goes back to um, many years of uh, learning to be competitive at um, summer camp. Um, I'm a fairly direct um, person. Um, if you didn't guess it, I get very enthusiastic about certain things. Um, and when I'm enthusiastic about something, I have a tremendous amount of energy um, to, to focus on it. Um, so I think all those things probably early on gave me the skills to do it. And I, I'm not afraid to admit that I don't know something. And I learn from mistakes. It's really important. The number of mistakes I made when I started my first company, oh, oh. It's a tragedy. But uh, it, it was successful. But the scale of success could have been so much larger had I known some things about it. Um, so the second time around, you're a lot smarter. And the next time, you're a lot smarter about it. And, and that helps do it. But if you can learn it, it's much better to learn it from a textbook than to learn it on the job real time. Um, so my name is Hiran, and I'm a material science graduate student. And more than a question, I essentially have a proposal for yourself as university president. Um, a lot of graduate students at Stanford are working on innovative ideas and energy or biotech or whatever it might be. And a lot of these things can be commercialized, you know, like, you know, for profit. What about getting graduate students, each and every single one of them, uh, as of later on this year, you know, as of the new class of 2009, to publish a minimum of one to two pages, ideally a chapter in their master's or PhD thesis, explaining how what they've done could be used in a wider societal context. So for example, you know, in energy you can say, you know, we can make uh, you know, a more efficient solar cell and this could be potentially be used in parts of Africa which have a lot of sun. So you, you know, essentially publish two to three pages in your thesis and then that could be used by future generations of students to say, hey, you know, that was a great idea and if nobody followed up on that, maybe I can follow up on that. What would you think of that proposal? Yeah. And if you think it's a good proposal, how do we meet to make this happen? Yeah, I think it's an interesting proposal, but I think... I think there's a, a bit of caution you have to take at the same time. Um, and that's that not every thesis, not every paper is a commercially exploitable piece of technology. And we shouldn't drive for that. Because long before you build that new solar cell, there are years and years of research on fundamental device physics, on new device structures, that has to go on before somebody can come along and put the capstone on and say, I've got the new solar cell, 50% efficiency, revolutionize the solar industry. And it's quite important that universities nourish, support, and reward that basic work. Because guess what? It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world anymore. The large central research laboratories that worked on the really fundamental things in the world are largely gone. They're too hard to support in this modern environment, um, and the result is that universities have to do that. So while I think it's terrific that you, we invent that new solar cell, let's not forget that that builds on years of fundamental work and that it's important to recognize those contributions as well. When I, when I think about what I ask somebody to do in research, what I'd say to them is, your work should make a difference. One way to make a difference is that it has a practical application in the world that's positive. Another way to make a difference is it lays a foundation on which the next generation of researchers can build so that we eventually get to that. But I think it's an interesting idea. Certainly students should talk about applications of their technology. Hi, John Sand. I'm a staff emeritus with Stanford's Office of Technology License. I was just going to make an observation about Google because that is a, a big success story here. And what people 
most people don't know is that a lot of companies get started at Stanford by students or faculty on the basis is I'm going to show them. Where an industry doesn't embrace and no, recognize oh, value. John. And that was the case with Google when Larry Page came to us in 1997 with his technology. He, he had no intent to start a company. Yep. And he assumed that industry, would, the existing com uh, search companies, would em eagerly embrace it. Yep. And when they didn't, he got mad. You, this is an absolutely true observation. Yeah. I had exactly the same experience. When uh, I and my colleague Dave Patterson published our papers on risk, we thought this is so much obviously better than what exists out there. It is so much better. We just need to publish the papers and the guys in industry will pick it up. And then along came a good friend of mine, Gordon Bell, uh, one of the founders of Digital Equipment Corporation, which then was the second largest computer company in the world, today part of HP, um, and said, you have to start a company. I said, I don't want to start a company. I'm here busy being an academic. I'm publishing my papers. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. I like my life. Um, he said, if you don't start a company, this technology is going to wither on the vine and nobody will pick it up. And in the end, that was the motivation for us as well, that we decided that that was the, the case, that we had to do it because partly the technology, not only was people didn't believe it, but partly it was threatening to the established base as well. And that's always a concern. You know, you're selling these machines and they cost X and somebody comes along and says, I can show you how to build a computer that costs half as much and is twice as fast. Why would I want to do that? Then I'll sell a lot, less, a lot fewer computers. Well, of course, eventually you have to find uh, the champions, the new company that will come along and upset the apple cart. My name is Jimmy Benjamin. I'm an alum, former doctoral student in the Management Science and Engineering program with uh, Professor Pete Cornell. Um, one of the key uh, incubators for spinning ideas, for moving ideas from the university environment into the commercial environment uh, are organizations that universities set up to focus on uh, the licensing of those technologies. At Stanford, for example, we'd be talking about the Office for Technology Licensing. They also have a role in uh, providing a stream of uh, capital that can facilitate their own project, uh, their, own, their own mission, as well as providing dollars to go back into the university endowment. And I wonder, uh, based on your experience and the difficulty of uh, making that transition, if you feel that there are things that uh, they're doing particularly well, things that they might do better. Um, I spent 19 years at Hewlett Packard before I left to mm. become a student here as a, a doctoral student. And uh, my experience was that we had a much more effective uh, program for moving medical technology out of uh, the university environment into Silicon yeah. Valley than we do for uh, computer technology. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And, and one reason for that is medical technology more often involves a fundamental patent, a fundamental scientific discovery. So it's more crystal clear what the protectable intellectual property is. Uh, John Sandlin mentioned the example of the Google, of Google, and Google did. Google had a fundamental patent, um, and that was a different situation. You know, in, in Yahoo, what exists in Yahoo that's protectable? It's a concept that you need a directory to help uh, organize things in the internet and make them more navigable. That's the key concept. It's not, a, it's not a fundamental technology thing. Now, the key was, from a business perspective, that that turned into a way to generate advertising revenue and that people would use it and it would bring people to a site. Um, so I, I think there is some, there is some truth to that. Um, but again, it gets back to that, what can the university do? Well, we're blessed with having around us an environment which gobbles up lots of great ideas. Um, um, despite the... Uh, serendipity that may often occur, and it occurred in all these cases. It occurred in the case of MIPS. It occurred in the case of Yahoo. It occurred in the case of Google. It occurs in lots of these companies. There's serendipity, and but for one little event that occurred at one time, those companies might not ha have existed. So you could say, well, shouldn't the university try to do that? Well, the university is not particularly good at figuring out which of these ideas are really going to be successful. It's not particularly good at picking out the um, roses from the weeds as it goes through the process, so to speak. Uh, and that's what the outside environment is very good at. Um, because only the, only the fittest companies in the end survive. It's very competitive. It's very tough. Uh, and the, I, I think the outside environment is good at picking that out. 
Hi, I'm Julie Black. I'm a student at the GSB, and I was a, and I'm an alum of the Computer Science Department. I um, remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering what efforts um, Stanford's taking to create cross-department synergies. Um, mm. So you mentioned that the importance of this uh, in your talk, and and one thing that I've observed is that there there may be certain parts of the university that that are l more segregated from other parts. Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, beyond. E-Week and, and, and things of this nature, um, if we want to create long-lasting relationships in order to, to truly innovate, um, what, what are we doing to, to, to facilitate that? Yeah, and I, I think we are trying to facilitate it, and I think, um, I, I kind of think of it as, um, in the end, what we want to do is get people to work together. The first thing to observe about any university is that there are a lot more students than there are faculty, and they're perhaps a little more adventurous about crossing over what, to a faculty member, might resemble an impassable desert to get to collaborate with somebody else. So, of course, in the end, while we may try to bring faculty together, what we're really trying to do is get the students to work together. And we're trying to do that for two reasons. One is not only because that can result in some new innovation and new discovery, but also because we believe that the way in which students will need to be educated for the future is to combine both depth with some breadth, some ability to talk to people in adjacent disciplines and fields, because that's what they'll be doing over their careers as they move along. So I, I've always thought about it, how do we break through that energy barrier? And I think we break through it with various kinds of joint degree programs, joint teaching opportunities. Um, so the uh, course I mentioned, Entrepreneurial Design for Extreme Affordability, is taught by a business school faculty member with help from engineering school as well, and they participate. But we also need joint research programs as well. And one of the things we've done is create the equivalent of a seed venture fund for research so that we can get faculty who've never collaborated before over the energy barrier by giving them a small amount of money to get the research started. And it's just like a seed capital, just like an angel investment, you're betting that if you can get the research going um, and you've got very capable people, that there's some probability of success. And that will build a, a, a more uh, lasting opportunity. And then when that, that group has some progress, then they go out for their next round of funding to the NIH, to the NSF, to some other funding agency, and they get a lot more money um, than we could have funded them. And the research takes the next step. And I think that's one way in which we've been able to jumpstart these collaborations. But we need to keep thinking about new ways to do it. Thanks, Julie. Let's go. Hi, Professor Hansi. Um, I was wondering what advice you have for graduating students deciding between the comforts of a job and starting a company, especially given the current poor state of the economy. Well, um, it's a good time to get some income, probably. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, first of all, we should all remember the lesson that we learned when dot-com turned into dot-bomb in 2000, 2001, right? when we had the collapse. The number one lesson we should have learned is good technology is not enough to make a great company, but you sure need it to start. And the dozens of internet companies, which had neither a terribly new business innovation, which is fine too, you can start a company around a new business innovation, witness eBay and Amazon, that's a perfectly good way to do something. But if you don't have a new innovation there, or a new technology innovation, um, if selling pet food across the internet is your business plan, it's probably not going to work. First of all, the barrier to entry is very low because pet food is cheap, everybody can buy it. Um, but you've also got the problem. I remember buying from Pets.com, and they offered free shipping on 20-pound bags of dog food. They were losing. Every time I bought a bag of dog food, they were shipping me $10 extra. So it's, it's a kind of business model that never made sense. It, not that you can't start a company, but I think the better your technology base is and the higher the barrier to competition, the better your success is going to be. So... And I, I, we're, luckily, we're now past this. I remember in the 2000 boom, students were coming to me saying, I want to start a company, I want to start a company. I said, well, what, what technology innovation do you have? Well, I don't have one yet, but I'm going to find one. I'm going to find one. So that's the wrong way to think about it. That's the wrong way to think about it, right? So you need to think about it another way. Um, 
The, the, but the startup business is also counter-cyclic. It, because it's, it's not a great time to take a company public, that doesn't mean it's not a great time to start a new young company, because a new young company will not blossom for a number of years in the future. And hopefully by then, the bankers will have cleaned up the mess they've made. Uh, my name is Qian Liang. Uh, I work for the Institute of Economics, Academia Sinica, Taiwan. I come here uh, for a, a seminar on uh, innovation and uh, energy efficiency. Okay, my question is that you mentioned that uh, uh, it's uh, important not only write or publish papers, but uh, go out to influence the, the world. Okay, so uh, a university in, uh, consists of not only students but also faculty. And faculty is very important in play this law. So uh, because uh, faculty had to promote, right? So usually based on the publication, like SCI or something. So what kind of system you uh, encourage uh, your faculty, not only focus on publication, but also on influence to the yeah. world? Well, I, I, I don't know that you need to encourage people um, a great deal in a positive way. What you need to do is you need to make it okay to do that. You need to make it okay to say, I'm going to take a leave from the academic world for a little while and try and take this technology out into the real world. And I think one of the things, if you, if you look out there, history has shown, even for people who've come back to Stanford as academics, that if they were successful in moving their technology and it became successful in the real world, it magnified the scale of their contributions significantly, significantly. And we have many faculty members who are probably more famous for their uh, journey, which took their technology to the outside world, or as famous for that as they are for any paper they wrote. So I think that there's a lot to be learned there. Uh, I also learned a tremendous amount about being a better teacher, about being a better author. And the most important paper, one of the most important papers I ever wrote, and the cornerstone of the book that I wrote with Dave Patterson, um, was something that I didn't figure out till I had to go work for a company and explain why the technology we invented was really better. To give a bottoms-up explanation, not just to show it ran programs faster, but to explain scientifically what was happening. And I was never pushed to do that until I had to start explaining it to customers, actually. And somebody asked us that question. Then I was pushed to solve the problem, and that led to a, a really wonderful insight and eventually became the cornerstone for the book that I wrote with Dave Patterson. So I think there are worlds, there are completely different things you can learn and experience in that outside world that are very valuable. And if the university recognizes those, then it's perfectly fine. Then the process takes off by itself. Hi, my name is Jeremy Carr. I'm an entrepreneur in the area applying to the MSE program. Um, there's been two cycles of kind of technology. And in the first one, we had you know, Google, Yahoo, eBay kind of come out. In the second phase, you know, there's the Facebook and MySpace, things like that. But one could argue that they're not the same kind of scale of success that the first boom kind of gave. Um, could you give some of your thoughts as to why that might be? Well, like any new technology, um, the first time around, um, one can get some of the low-hanging fruit. And sometimes the low-hanging fruit is the fruit that's been sitting in the sun the longest, and it's the ripest, and it has the biggest opportunity um, for exploiting it. It's the fastest to, to engineer and get out there. So the position of being the market leader um, can happen much more quickly in some cases. Um, that doesn't mean, for example, that I think we're at all done with the internet revolution. We're not at all done with the internet revolution. We're just beginning to tap as the internet becomes more global, as more information goes online, there'll be more and more opportunities. They'll require more engineering They'll require bigger systems to exploit because the problems will get harder. They may not catch on as fast because the industry gets um, more and more crowded. I remember once somebody said something to me um, about the computer industry, since I've been involved in that now for 30 some odd years, and they said, you know, it's much harder now to create an innovation that really shifts the computer industry in a fundamental way. 
And that observation is true because there are a lot more people working in it. The industry is much bigger. It's got much more inertia. On the other hand, you're now shifting an industry which is hundreds of billions of dollars annually as opposed to an industry which 30 years ago was tens of billions of dollars. So the impact collectively is just as large as it was. It just requires a different approach to do it. So I think those innovations, innovations will happen. Um, but they'll take time. And I don't think you can't put it on a schedule. You can't have a formula. And this is one of the problems we face now in the, the green tech sector. There's so much emphasis on getting new technology out there and getting it to market that we haven't taken all the time we need to invent. We have a lot more invention to do before we're really going to have the breakthrough in green tech that sustains itself not only when oil is $150 a barrel, but when oil is $100 or $60 a barrel. That's what we need. That's not going to be a technology we invent overnight. It's hard, hard problems. They're not easy problems. So I think we get back to this issue of go back to the basics, do the invention, and then move forward. Hi, um, my name is Rudy, and I'm a sophomore here. I'm a computer science major, but I dream about a different kind of startup. My dream is to start a university someday, um, hopefully as a world class at Stanford, probably in India, because that's what I, um, I'm thinking right now. I probably cannot get a better person to answer this question for me than you. Uh, how would you, you know, advise me to go about it, or anyone to go about it, <laughs> or what are some mistakes one can avoid? Okay, so, well, path? this is a big, start a university. Okay, first, find someone with a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of mo more than you think. We have lots of people who come and say, we want to start a new university in place X, and we want you to be our partner, and we have this much money. They're usually off by a factor of 100, sometimes by a factor of 1,000 or 10,000 what they need. Find billions of dollars. That's what you need. If you want to start a great university, that's what you need. Remember what, remember what Stanford was started with. You take the amount that Stanford was started with, turn it into today's money, and you have billions of dollars. Right? So we have a new university in Saudi Arabia, for example, that just started that has this ambition to be a world-class university. Kaust. $10 billion. That was the first starting for building the buildings and starting the endowment. And that, that's a scale that you can actually do. And that's only a graduate institution. So the other thing is, pick where you want to start. You can't start a university that does all things for all people instantly. So for example, in India, one might say, I'm going to build a university that starts with graduate programs, masters in, and PhD programs in science, engineering, technology. Because, of course, you have the great IITs there to partner with that provide a wonderful undergraduate education. So you could think about, you could think about doing that. Um, better to start smaller and excellent and then to grow over time than to start large and compromise on quality. The other thing, I think, if you look at what's made Stanford a great university is it draws on the best talent from around the world. Right? You come from India, other students come from around the world, our faculty comes from around the world, drawing from the best talent, because in the end, that's really what it is about. It's about the quality of the students and the faculty that make the great university. Yes, they need buildings in which to work. Yes, they need facilities. It's nice they can walk outside in this beautiful place. But without the people, those are hollow shells, and that's really the key to understand about a university. Hi, John. Uh, Brad Burke from Inside Venture. Uh, basically, it's a direct private market platform where we take late-stage venture-backed companies and we pair them with investors. In a nutshell, it's basically a very, very exclusive Facebook for companies and investors. And basically, my question, um, it's a startup. We've been uh, around for about a year and a half now. And from the company side, when they're looking at venture capital firms, what what are some of the requisites? I, I know already, but from your perspective, what are some of the requisites that they're looking at for those venture capital firms when they're looking at funding? I know management expertise, obviously money, but from your, from your opinion, what do you think? You know, I think, 
I used to say about um, venture capital firms that money is cheap, really good, committed advice is very hard to find. And I think with the scale of, particularly for a young company, with the scale of most of the larger venture firms, and this isn't true in all cases because now there are a bunch of very small venture firms, but with the scale of that and the commitment that a general partner has to make and the number of boards they have to be on and where they're going to spend their time on larger ventures and things like that, it's very hard for that small little company to get a start. Because lots of the best companies, they're not ready to write a business plan on day one. You know, the, 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 if you saw the MIPS business plan, you would laugh. There was no business plan. There were a bunch of slides on why this was great technology and how much money we needed to develop it and a schedule. And luckily, we convinced a few venture capitalists that the technology was strong enough to overcome all the disadvantages in having a bunch of engineers try to run a company. Um, but I think finding the right people, finding people who will supply good advice, good mentorship for a young team is absolutely crucial. And I think it's one of the hardest things to find. And that's where I'd advise you to focus. Hi, my name is uh, David Kralik. I uh, work for an organization called American Solutions. It's uh, founded by former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. We have an office out here in the Valley. Um, I came a little bit late, so you may have already answered this question, but I'm curious if you have, I'll get the transcript. Um, to what effect has the bailout affected entrepreneurship? And I have two thoughts on that. One is that, you know, if we're looking at capping executive compensation, how in the world are we going to get smart people to turn around these banks, these companies, if you're saying, like, you can't, you get your cap to this amount? And then, um, second thing is, you know, um, I believe entrepreneurship succeeds by failure. And if you say, well, don't worry about failure, the government will bail you out, whether it's GM or banks, you know, how are, we, how are people going to learn from their mistakes and how are we going to, you know, have failure if you know the government's always there to bail you out. Yeah. Well, obviously, um, a bailout is the last resort, something in a capitalist society you should do only because the danger to uh, unrelated businesses which are not responsible um, exceeds the moral hazard of bailing somebody out. And that's exactly the dilemma in which we find ourselves now. Um, I, I actually don't believe in capping executive compensation, but I do believe in something that we've forgotten about in many walks of the corporate sector and the banking sector, which is that compensation should directly tie to performance. Directly tie to performance. You lose $40 billion of people's money, you shouldn't get $500,000. You should get zero. Zero. That's where your compensation starts. You should get stock in the company so that when it plummets in value, you feel the same pain that the people who lost all that money. That's what should happen. And our big problem is that we've gotten away from tying executive compensation to measurable performance of CEOs. And in fact, there's some wonderful research done by one of our faculty members in the law school that shows that the best investments in the stock markets are in companies which pay their CEOs well, but tie the CEO pay to CEO performance. It makes perfect sense. If they're paying their CEO well, but they've tied it to his performance, he's earning a lot of money, the shareholders are happy campers because the company is doing well. That's what we need to get back to, and that's the kind of mindset we need. We don't have all the proper tools. I mean, options are a tool that have pluses and minuses in doing this. Other tools have difficulties. But paying people large bonus packages, guaranteeing them that even if you decide to fire them, this isn't the way to generate the right kind of behavior among the leadership of a company. So we need to go back and fix this now, and it'll get fixed. And hopefully, lots of people will decide that they'd rather be in one of these great entrepreneurial sectors than in the banking sector in the future. Good afternoon, Professor. My name is Murthy Mithipukasam. I'm an alumnus of the Management Science Department here. And um, I sort of have a question along the same lines as the previous question, which is sort of, just broadly speaking, what do you think is the role of government, both at the state level and the national level, uh, in spurring innovation and entrepreneurship? So I know you've talked a little about funding, um, immigration policy, foreign policy, and I think all of these things have some yeah, sort sure. of impact. So in your well, mind, I, can, I think clearly the government does have a, a key role in here, um, a role in ensuring that trade barriers are, are get out of the way and are taken down and, and don't, are not resurrected. 
in promoting the movement of the very best people to the place where the very best opportunities exist in immigration policy, in investing in fundamental research and really trying to nurture the creative process at the very beginning of where it exists, which is primarily in universities, research settings, um, not mucking around a lot with industrial policy, particularly for an established economy. I think it's a slightly different situation when you have an economy that's just developing and trying to um, create a stamp in a particular area. For, I think that policy has worked well in Taiwan, for example, and parts of China where the government worked very effectively with a growing entrepreneurial sector. But in the U.S., we have a large entrepreneurial sector here. I think if the government decides that it wants to move towards a more environmentally, source of, more environmentally friendly source of energy for the country, then it should invest in those key technologies. So I'm, it's not that I believe that investments in research should be blind to where the opportunities are. They should be driven with a strategic viewpoint of what's important to the country and where there might be opportunities. But clearly that's where the government's role is. I think it gets itself in trouble when it tries to pick winners and losers um, downstream, both because it doesn't have the competence to do it and because the distortion it introduces into the system is probably unhealthy for both the good companies and, and probably supports the bad companies longer than they should be supported. But that's what we'd really like to see, I think. Professor Hennessy, uh, my name is Gil. I'm an undergraduate here at Stanford. And uh, my question is a bit more personal. I was wondering uh, which do you find more satisfying, academia or the private sector? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I guess I'm back here, so I think the answer probably speaks for itself. I, I, but I have to say these are two kinds of rewards. Um, you know, being in a company working on a product, seeing that product go out the door, somebody buy it, seeing it installed at a customer location, solving their problems. That's an immensely rewarding thing. It's incredibly rewarding. And that the intensity of being, at least in a small company, because I've never done it in a big company, the intensity of doing that and working in that. And I, I remember when we did MIPS. You know, we're getting near the end, ready to ship the product. And there aren't enough test engineers. So I started writing test programs to test the processor out. You do what has to be done. I did everything. I did cold calls. I did sales calls. That's how I first, it's a good preparation for being a president where you have to do a lot of development and ask people for a lot of money. Uh, so I, I did all those things. It was incredible. I learned so much in such a short period of time. It was wonderful. But I had one great regret. I missed not having students. I loved having colleagues. I loved all that. But not having students in the classroom, not having students in my research setting, that's what I missed. And that's why I came back to the university. And that's why I'm still here. So Professor Hennessy, my name again is Hiran Mulchandani. And I say it again okay. because hopefully in the coming few months and years, uh, you and I will get to know each other better as I really try to help change university policy on this. But my question, perhaps if it was misinterpreted before, was more about how do we get doctoral students um, and graduate students in general to start thinking about their research from a societal context in the developing world, yeah. an underlying developing world, because yeah. I think, you know, it's great that we're doing all this to make big, you know, rich companies, but what about uh, brothers and sisters dying with no food, water, shelter, medication? How do we change that? Why don't we get them all to publish a few pages or, or a chapter in the yeah. dissertation talking about that? I, I think the answer is we are thinking about those problems. If we don't solve the energy problem and find another way to generate energy that doesn't generate greenhouse gases, the destruction to the developing world will make, will be the real damage. Yes, it'll be a problem in the United States, but we have enough money, we can uh, counteract the problem. It'll be ugly. You know, New York City, people will need rowboats to get around and things like that. But imagine what will happen in a place like Bangladesh. Or imagine what happens in sub-Saharan Africa, where they have droughts that last years and years and years in a, in a post-globally warmed environment. That's the real, that's the kind of thing we need to think about. So we do need to think about those. We need to think about new medicines. We need to think about infectious diseases. And we need to think globally. I agree with all that. I agree with that. Okay, last question over here. Yes, my name is Carlos Miranda. I'm a Digital Vision Fellow of 2004 here. My question is, there are several programs around the world in the developing world to develop an entrepreneurial spirit. And they are quite successful at 
bring in that spirit from the people. And you can find entrepreneurs, you can find mentors, but there's one thing missing, and it's the venture capitalist, not available in the developing world. How to turn local investors, people with money, into venture capitalists? I think it'll happen. I think it'll happen over time. Um, who became the venture capitalists in the valley? It was some finance people, but who became the next generation? It was successful entrepreneurs right? and people who would fund that. I think this will happen over time. But what's key is that the government in those places supports a business structure, supports the rule of law, convinces investors that if they invest their money there and they invest in something that's a good idea, that it can flourish, it can grow, it can be successful, it can have a liquidity event, all the things that you need to make this market work. And I think as that happens, uh, it'll be a lot easier to make this successful. Tina's going to throw me off the stage. So, all right, thank you so much. My pleasure. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.